person has in his or her mind just what he or she wants out of a certain situation, a certain relationship, a certain experience. They've got it all planned out in their heart, in their mind, exactly what they want. And they enter into the situation or they enter into the relationship. And when those expectations are unfulfilled, that is the test of a person's character. How will that person now respond to the expectations that he or she has anticipated falling short of that anticipation and the goal. Joseph was faced with that. I'm sure that when he was the favored son of his father back in the land of Canaan, he had no idea that one day he would be in a pit and sold to Ishmaelites. And he would be a slave for a man named Potiphar and his wife would come on to him and then he'd spend a couple years in jail. And each blow brought him lower and lower as all of his expectations were unfulfilled. All of those happy childhood memories faded into but a dream. But at the same time, he had no idea what was beyond that. That he would be elevated as second in command. He would have the second chariot. All of Egypt would bow down to him. And God would give him a great plan to save the world, the known world, from a famine. How do you view those expectations, those desires that just don't happen, just don't click. There was a kid who was out, I've told you the story, he, he had a, decided to make a little boat, took the boat out on the lake, made the sails, glued the sails together onto the wood and put that boat across the lake and he was all stoked, so excited to watch that little boat finally sail across the lake. Well, the wind came up and sunk the boat. He'd saved up his money. He spent his time to make the boat. And now his boat is sunk in a minute flat. While most kids would cry and whine because they didn't get their way, the kid looked up, noticed that there was a wind anyway. He said, it looks like a great day to fly a kite. Joseph had more or less that attitude. When things weren't going well, it was like, okay, what is God saying in this? What's God's plan? Instead of saying, my will be done in heaven as it is in my world. It was my will be conformed to you. Your will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Joseph has been in Egypt, and we've already seen how God has taken him through the different stages to where he's become now prime minister of the land. There's an old Egyptian proverb that says, A foreigner who comes to Egypt and drinks of the Nile River will forget his, his native land. That's one of the boasts that the Egyptians used to have. Hey, you come to Egypt, you check out Egypt, and you take one drink of the Nile, you'll forget all about your background. Well, Joseph didn't forget. He still remembered his brothers. He remembers Benjamin. He longs to see. It's been 20 years since he's seen his family. And he remembers all of the incidences of being a child and being sold into Egypt. But at the same time, he has forgotten the emotional pain that is attached to those experiences. For he named his firstborn child Manasseh, which means forgetful, or amnesia. Saying, God has made me forget all of the pain, all of the hardship that I suffered at the hands of my family. Though he remembered them, he forgot the pain that was associated. And here's a man that was quick to forgive. Chapter 43 through 45 are some of the most moving chapters in the Bible. Joseph will meet with his brothers three times. We've already seen one of those meetings. As Joseph takes his brother through a series of tests. Three tests before he reveals himself. Now in chapter 45, he can restrain himself no longer. He's about to break down and cry and he says, I'm Joseph. And he forgives his brothers. But until he reveals himself, there's some tests. And you see, Joseph shouldn't reveal himself prematurely to his brothers. That would be wrong. Because he's not so sure that 20 years has changed these characters any. They still might be the same rats that they were 20 years before. Jealous. And so he takes him through a series of tests. In uh, chapter 42, we remember that though they appeared in front of Joseph, they did not recognize Joseph. Though Joseph recognized them. He 
could understand Hebrew and he could understand their conversation. They, on the other hand, had no idea that this second in command was none other than their brother Joseph, who was also a Hebrew. But keep in mind, they hadn't seen him for 20 years. He was 17 back then. He's 37 now. He's clean-shaven. He has the garb of an Egyptian. And besides that, they thought he was dead. They are sent away. And then in chapter 43, they're going to be brought back. Now, I would like you, before we get into chapter 43, keep your finger here and uh, go to Matthew chapter 5. The New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. And let's go down in Matthew 5 to the very pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. In verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Back in the 60s, the big slogan that we had was, love man, peace man, right? Just love the world. And the song that people more or less adapted was the or adopted as their slogan, was the Beatles song written by John Lennon, All You Need Is Love. Nothing you can do that can't be done, nothing you can't sing that can't be sung, nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game. Then he said, it's easy. All you need is love. Well, love is easy when you're around people who are lovable. What about people disagree with you or slap you around or hate you or persecute you? The kind of love Jesus refers to here, the love of enemies, is not easy. It's not natural. It can only be pulled off supernaturally. The first part's easy. The second part is difficult. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Loosely paraphrased, big deal. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect or complete, teleos, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, loving your enemies, or translated into Joseph's setting, forgiveness separates the men from the boys, the big legs from the bush legs. When somebody says, you're a wonderful person, it's easy to say, hey, thanks, I, I love you. Somebody says, you're a jerk, and I'm out to get you. To say, I love you, that's tough. Love your enemies, how difficult, but try it sometime, it'll drive them nuts. They go want to get back at him. Hey, try loving him. That's kind of hard to handle somebody who has that irresistible love. Juan Carlos Ortiz, a pastor down in South America, said one time that he went up to this deacon in a church and he went to hug him and the guy says, you can't hug me. I'm your enemy. Ortiz said, I didn't know you were my enemy, but that's great. It's a good opportunity for me to love my enemy and he hugged him anyway. Drove the guy nuts. But within a year, he was speaking in that man's church, and they became close. <laughs> Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Understand this. Forgiveness is an act of your will. If you wait until you feel like it, you won't forgive much. Love is an act of will. If you wait always until you have feelings of love, your love will be very undependable. And you know, that needs to be said because today, more and more relationships are being based upon how you feel rather than, I have decided to love you forever. People forget that when they're at the altar, they say that little phrase, until 
death do us part. Usually they don't mean that. Sometimes they mean until feelings do us part. Hey, look, man, I'll love you and you'll love me until you turn ugly or I turn ugly and we see things differently, all right? Mutual agreement, right? Short-lived relationship. That's not a commitment. How many people we have counseled who said, hey, I just don't love them anymore. Well, that's a choice. You've decided not to love them. But I don't have feelings. Hey, you make a choice to love that jerk if he's been that way to you. And you just say, no matter what, I'm going to show my love to him. And you stick at it as an act of your will. And after a while, you will watch and experience those feelings return. I've seen relationships on the edge of breakup for many reasons. Lack of trust. A breach of trust because of another relationship. And I've watched them almost severed, but that couple decided, hey, we're going to stick it out. We're going to make a commitment to each other. And I'm going to decide to forgive you and I'm going to decide to love you. Though they didn't feel like it at first, eventually that love, that feeling was rekindled. And Joseph kind of had that all the way through his life. Um, Now let's go on. Go back to Genesis. Chapter 43 is when Joseph's brothers return. They've gone all the way back to Canaan. They've met Jacob. They told him what had happened. And the first time Joseph met with his brothers, Joseph spoke very roughly to them. He said, who are you guys? He said, well, we live down in Canaan and our father's name is Jacob and we're 12 sons, one is no more. And he said, I don't believe you, you're lying, you're spies. And he spoke roughly to test their sincerity. Now chapter 43 is a test of jealousy. The famine was severe in the land. Um, Before we go on, are you hot in here tonight? Yes? I feel that way too. I mean, it is just a little furnace. If we could have somebody fix that. Um, One of the fellas uh, could just adjust the uh, air conditioning a little bit. I'll tell you what, speak talking about hot. Christmas Eve service, both of those were hot, right? The famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. But Judas spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face until your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you some food. But if you will not send him, we won't go down. For the man said to us, You shall see my, not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, that's Jacob, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, Hey, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety. In other words, my life for his life. I'll have a legal transaction and I'll make sure if anything happens to your son, I'll pay for it personally. And from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Obviously, these were some staple items that weren't affected by the famine. And you know what a great present, pistachio nuts. I got some of those for Christmas myself this year. I love them. Now take double money in your hand and go back in your hand. Take the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Remember in the last chapter, they left after the first time and they opened their sacks. Not only was there the grain that they thought they had purchased, but also the money that they thought that they had given to the Egyptians. And there it was. The money was with the, uh, 
grain. So they thought, you know, it was a refund, and perhaps this refund was an oversight, so you better double up this time. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, then I am bereaved. See, it's a matter of life and death. The famine was so severe that Jacob figures, listen, we're going to die anyway. Though I don't want my son to be expended in this journey. It's worth the risk. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. What's great is that unless the famine were this severe, he never would have gone back. Unless there was a famine in the first place, they never would have gone to Egypt. But it was all part of God's plan to get the children of Israel down in the land of Goshen that they might populate and become sort of uh, tucked away so that they might grow uh, in the next several years. And may God Almighty give you, I already read that, verse 15, So the men took the present and Benjamin. They took double money in their hand. They arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may seek an occasion against us and fall upon us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Guilt has an amazing way of ruining everything. You know, you'd think, again, these guys would be excited. The first time when they opened up their sacks and they saw the grain with the money, they were paranoid. They said, God, what have you done to us? You've enriched us. We've got money and grain. You see, they should have been excited. This time, Joseph gives them a personal invitation, quite a high honor to dine with him. What if the president called you up? He said, only got a few days left. Like you to come dine with me. <laughs> now, if it was me, I'd be pretty excited. I'd say, really? Golly, that's great. Hey, voted for you. The least I can do is eat with you. Sure. It'd be exciting. Would I say, God, why have you done this to me? But you see, guilt, when a person is motivated by guilt and living under guilt, things that should be joyful turn sour. They turn into misery. You interpret things through the lens of your guilt. That's why one of the most important things for your emotional, mental health is the alleviation of guilt. That's where God's grace comes in. If you do not understand God's grace, you will live under guilt. Now, guilt has its place. Guilt is meant to drive you to the solution for the guilt so that you can have it alleviated and have the peace of God which passes all understanding. But God never intends you to live under the weight of guilt. He wants you to experience conviction, but that's to drive you to the cross and get that guilt taken care of. That's going to happen. Don't worry. Chapter 45, the guilt problem will be dealt with when they confess their sin. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we intend to came down at first to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we brought it back in our hand. And we've brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. But he said, the steward said, Oh, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I get the idea that Joseph evangelized in Egypt. Because here this Egyptian steward who worked for Joseph is speaking about the God of the father of Isaac, or the father of Jacob. He says, your God and the God of your father. Not the pagan gods, the polytheism of Egypt, but the monotheism, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, oh, you know, chill out, man. Don't worry about it. Peace be to you. God has taken care of you. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. Now, 
comes the second meeting. They've come back. They're going to meet Joseph face to face. And the test now is the test of jealousy. See, Joseph is wondering, will these brothers be jealous if, say, their younger brother, Benjamin, is honored more than they are honored? He remembered 20 years back when he was 17, and he himself was honored with that long-sleeved, multicolored coat. And he knew, and everybody knew, that his father loved him. And he was the favored son, and he remembers their jealousy, so he wants to see if any of that has changed at this point. When Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and they bowed down before him to the earth. Now again, I just want to remind you of the dream that Joseph had. Two dreams. When Joseph was 17 years old, he dreamt that they were binding sheaves in the field, and that Joseph's sheaf arose and stood straight up, and all of the brother's sheaves bowed down to Joseph's sheaf. And the brothers said, hey, what do you, you think we're going to bow down to you? Little whippersnapper. He had another dream that the 11 stars, the sun and the moon, which is his mom and dad, also bowed down to him, which made his father a little bit angry. Here they are in fulfillment of the dream, bowing down to the earth. And then he asked them about their well-being, and he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? He's concerned about dad. They don't know it's his dad. But in his heart, he's yearning for that relationship back again. And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. And then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now remember, Benjamin is his real brother. These other guys are half-brothers. But Benjamin and Joseph share the same mother and father. Now his heart yearned for his brother. Literally in Hebrew, his innards were burning up. That emotional tension upon seeing his brother after 20 years. And so Joseph made haste and he looked for somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and there he wept. This guy is so sensitive. Still loves those guys. Holds nothing really against his brothers. He already wept once. Now he sees Benjamin and it's just, oh, it's too much. Just got to look for a little room. Take me to my bedroom. Excuse me, please. Got a phone call. <laughs> and there he's weeping. Yearning for his brother, that relationship, once again. And he washed his face and he came out and he restrained himself. And he said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself. And them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, what happens with Joseph and Joseph's brothers are an indication, are a type, are a model of what will happen to Jesus Christ and the Jews. The first time Jesus came, the Jews did not really receive Jesus. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. They said, we will not have you rule over us. You are not our Messiah. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen would gather her chicks. You were not willing. But the second time that Jesus comes, the second meeting of the brethren of the Lord, the Jews and Jesus, there will be the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Jewish brethren. They will recognize him. In fact, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament. Uh, let me read it to you. Book of Zechariah. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieves for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And someone will say to him, What are these wounds in your hands? And then he will answer, Those which I was wounded with in the house of my friends. Where'd you get these wounds? They're the wounds that you inflicted on me, O Israel, and Romans, and people of the earth. But they'll look upon him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him. But they'll recognize him 
as he reveals himself to them. Verse 33, we'll finish up the chapter, 33 and 34. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. You see what's happening here? Joseph arranged the seating order. From the oldest to the next, to the youngest, all the way down from oldest to youngest in perfect chronological order. And they're sitting down going, how did he know who was born first and who was older and who was young? How did he know all of us like that? See, the little, he's dropping little hints. He's the one that set the place cards. And his younger brother Benjamin is seated. He took the servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and they were merry with him. First of all, it's not unusual in ancient cultures and even in some modern Near Eastern cultures to give a guest of honor more food than the rest of the folks at the table. He's kind of the person of honor. Hey, have second, have thirds. The Spartans would give a guest of honor, a ruler or a prince, double helpings. The Cretans, whom Paul says are gluttons and slow bellies in the New Testament. And he says, wherefore rebuke them sharply. The Cretans would give their guests of honor four times as much food as the rest of the folks who already had a decent meal. Benjamin gets five times as much. Why? Because it's a test. He's going to give preferential treatment to Benjamin. He wants to see, are they going to be jealous of Benjamin? Are they going to think, that little rat, dad always loved him best. And now look at him. That's what they did to Joseph. And so as Joseph's serving the food to his brothers, he's probably watching their faces, their expressions. How do they look? Are they jealous? Uh, but they passed the test. So they drank and they were merry with him. The ultimate test is yet to come in chapter 44, and that's the test of love, chapter 44 and chapter 45. It's one of the most moving passages in Scripture. He commanded the steward of the house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So do it again. Hey, they came down to buy food one time. We gave them the food. We put the money in the sack. Sent it away. Do it again. But he's going to throw in a curveball. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now this cup is nothing more than a prop. The cup that he refers to was the cup that the Egyptian rulers used for divination, to foretell the future. Though Joseph was a true man of God, and I don't think he practiced divination, though he's going to make it look like he did so that his brothers will believe he's really Egyptian. It's just a prop. He wants to see the reaction of his brothers when this cup is discovered. So as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away. They and their donkeys. This is a great scene. When they had gone out of the city and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this one, or is, this, is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. And so he overtook them and he spoke these words to them. And they said, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouths of our sack. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Then they get into the pledge. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. You know, there's a scripture in the book of James that says, Let every man be slow to speak. Swift to listen, slow to wrath. Watch out what you promise. Watch out what you speak. Think before you talk. Hey, find it, kill him. It's all planted. Joseph knows exactly what's going to happen. And we will also be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave. You shall be blameless. 
Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and opened his sack. And he searched, and he began with the oldest, and he left off with the youngest. You know why he did that? It's like dramatic pause. You open the sack, the big guy, and he goes, see, don't have it. Next guy, see? You do that, you know, 11 times, you think, come on. You know, you're getting a little bit agitated that the guy keeps looking through the sacks, but opens the last one. Voila. And all of a sudden, their countenance changes from confidence to, ooh. They feel lower than low because they said, let him be killed. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, why did he do this? Joseph did this because now he wants to see what his brother's reaction would be if their youngest son would be a slave in Egypt, just like he was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they didn't care. In fact, Judah said, hey, sell him as a slave. We'll make some money off the kid. Had they changed? Now, if there's the possibility of young Benjamin becoming a slave in Egypt, how will they react? Will they run back and tell daddy another lie? Or will they be guilt-ridden in their heart and try to rescue him? Had they changed? Well, verse 13, they tore their clothes. Now, that's the first mark that they were upset. In the ancient cultures, a person would rip his clothes as a sign of distress. When his brothers brought back word to Jacob that their son Joseph was torn by wild beasts, Jacob tore his clothes. When Job heard that his family had been destroyed by the Sabians, he tore his clothes. When a person would die, they would tear their clothes. In fact, to this day, it is Hebrew culture. A friend of mine who's an Orthodox Jew in Israel, when his father died, he took his garment and he ripped it when he found out. His shirt. It's a sign of distress and mourning. They tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Oh, man. Their heads are hanging really low. But don't you know, as Joseph is peering out the window of the city and he sees his brothers coming back, dragging their heels, tail between their legs. What a great sight that was for Joseph. Not because he was wanting vengeance, but because he saw them coming back. He knew that they were breaking, that they had changed, that there was repentance in their lives. It was a great sight for Joseph to see. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there, and they fell, fell before him on the ground, again fulfilling the dream. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? I think Joseph said it in a harsh voice. Because the first meeting that they had with Joseph, he spoke roughly to them. What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Just for the record, divination was practiced with a cup. Much like the... Greek practice called hydromancy, where you take a cup and you put fluid, water, or wine in it, and you kind of swirl it around, and whatever pattern you know is you see on there, you kind of interpret that as some future omen. Some like somebody would read a palm or tea leaves, you know, you throw the oh, there it is, you know, I see this and that. Um, the Egyptians on their cups had engravings of gods, men, images, and inscriptions, and the light that would reflect on the inward side of the cup, down on the fluid, would give them the prediction for the future. And so that's how divination was practiced. I don't see Joseph really practicing that, though he wanted to make his brothers believe that he was practicing it, so they would think he's an Egyptian. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Now look at this phrase. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. You know what he's referring to? Twenty years ago when they sold Joseph into Egypt, they tried to cover it up, tell lies, and live with it. They just lived with the guilt. And believe me, they lived with the guilt. Everything they saw was through the lens that was tainted by their own guilt. And so they finally surrendered. God found us out, man. We're busted. We hid it from everybody but God. And it's payback time. That's how they see it. That's good news as far as Joseph is concerned. The test is working. No attempt to cover it up. No attempt to rationalize. Now notice Joseph's response. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. 
That's not what I have in mind. But the man in whose cup or in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. Now Joseph's pushing it a little bit here. They know they can't go home to dad and say, guess what? The other son whom you love. So Joseph pushes it. Oh, hey, no, no, no. I don't mean all of you. Just this kid, the favored son, is going to be my slave. How does that set with you? You go on. Go in peace. Bye-bye. It's a test. It's a test of love. He wanted to see if they loved that little squirt. And if they loved their father enough to respect his wishes to honor the son. Now, verse 18 through verse 34 is one of the most touching speeches of intercession in all of the scripture. Sir Walter Scott, that famed British uh, fellow who loved the Bible so much, loved the word of God so much and had it read at his deathbed, said that, this chapter is one of the most beautiful examples of natural eloquence found in all of literature. And Judah came near to him and said, now listen to this speech, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, a child of his old age, who is young, his brother is dead, and he is alone, or he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was. When we went to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. So he's recounting the whole story since they met before. But we said, We can't go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother goes with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. Now, this is the first time that Joseph hears what his father had always believed about the fate of Joseph, that he was torn by wild beasts, the lie that his brothers had given dad. First time Joseph ever got wind of it. They're explaining it to him. But if you take this one also from me, and my calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore... When I come to your servant, my father, if the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And so your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. That's an interesting phrase. His life is bound up in the life of the lad. They're just... They're together. They're inseparable. Benjamin was the only reminder he had left of that beautiful love relationship that he had with his loved wife. His life is bound up. Hey, listen, if he dies, my father's going to die. I've seen this with people. When a loved one dies, they're so bound up with that person that often that person experiences such a loss and never gets over the grieving period, that soon that person starts having complications, diseases, problems, and dies soon after, especially in their latter years. And that's why, why it's so important that a person experiences the full gamut of the grieving process. It's not hindered. That a person grieves in a healthy manner, doesn't suppress it, doesn't hide it. Walks through it with his friends, has a support group so that they can grieve in a healthy fashion. So these complications don't happen. Hey, if this kid dies, dad's going to croak. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Oh, you know, Joseph is going like, this is great. This is great. Listen to Judah. Judah's saying, 
Hey, I told my dad that I'd stand in, in for this kid. If something happens to him, I'm taking full responsibility. Joseph is thinking, that's a switch. Back in chapter 37, Judah was the one who stood at the pit and said, Hey, wait a minute, don't kill this kid. Look, there's Ishmaelites coming. We can get some money off the kid. Sell them. He could care less for Joseph or his dad. Now he's saying, hey, I care for this kid. He's my brother, and I care for his father. My father will die because of this. Change has occurred. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? That's great. He's assuming responsibility. He's saying, look, I'll stand in for him. Let him go. I'll be your slave. Whatever, you know, you want to kill somebody, kill me. You want somebody as a slave, I'll be the slave. I'll stand in for him. Again, I just want to point out that what Judah did at this point is a type of what the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, would one day do, and that is provide substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, stand in our place, And say to the Father, don't kill them, I'll go to the cross. Let your wrath rest upon me, let me pay for the penalty of their sins, and let them live. Sort of a prefigure of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So, chapter 44, Judah takes responsibility. Now, I just want to say a word before we get into chapter 25. There's a lesson built into Judah and his whole meeting with Joseph. Guard your relationships. Guard your relationships. Your relationships are precious and very fragile. Judah had already ruined the relationship with his father, with Joseph. He had sinned and they had caused all these complications that have to be ironed out. Repentance has to uh, take place before forgiveness can take place. And it's, it's a 20 year long ordeal. Be careful what you do and what you say, especially to those who are in your family. Because you may live with long-term consequences. When I worked in hospitals, and even to this day as a pastor, I meet people all the time who said, you know, before Papa died, I yelled at him. Or before my husband or my wife died, we had a big fight, and I said, I hate you. And now I can never say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And they live with that the rest of their lives. That's difficult to live with. Guard those precious relationships. And know this. Repentance and responsibility will always bring results. Those three R's. Repentance and responsibility will bring results. Judah is repentant. He takes the responsibility. And we're going to see some results. And if you've got complicated relationships, strained relationships with somebody that you know and love, you take the initiative, you take the responsibility, you humble yourself and you repent and you'll see results. I've counseled people, their relationships are so messed up, you just wonder, how did they get it? I mean, it had to be almost planned to mess it up that badly. It's a can of worms. But you know what? You take out one worm at a time, and eventually you'll have an empty can. But you assume responsibility, and you bring in repentance, and you'll start seeing some results, guaranteed. Chapter 45, the drama intensifies as Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood before him. You see, he's seeing his brothers have changed. He's touched now emotionally. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. One thing I appreciate about ancient cultures, for that matter, Mideastern cultures in general, even to this day, they're not afraid to show their emotions. In fact, their emotions are often displayed very graphically, dramatically, in an outward way. Our Western culture, in its refinement, has taught people to suppress their emotions, right? Especially with men, and that can be devastating. Hey, men, you're a boy, you're a big boy, don't cry. Men don't cry. Really? 
Well, then why did God give us lacrimal glands, tear ducts? I mean, we have them too, right? But there are some cultures that so suppress that, and you go to be macho, put on the image, hey, it's cool, man. Oh, all right, I can handle it. Our society has traditionally been that way. In Britain, they're even more reserved. You think we're not emotional. I mean, over in England, you know, a handshake sometimes, that's great. God gave me a handshake. Whoa. And if they, you know, just, just a little bit of emotion is, is in some cases frowned upon. But in the Mideast, when somebody would uh, mourn, they would let out this wail that you could hear and still do to this day. They would show their emotion. I think that's healthy to some extent. I say to some extent because by the time of Jesus, it became so customary to mourn at a funeral that a person would hire professional mourners. That was part of the Jewish custom. Because the louder the wail, the more the person obviously was loved. So you would pay good money to a company who would supply you with uh, these professional mourners who would yell and bring sackcloth and beat their breast and rant and rave and throw dust in the air. And, and people would go by and go, Oh, he was so loved. Well, maybe the family had a lot of money. <laughs> so he wept aloud. The Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Now look at this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Every time I read this verse, I'm touched. What that must have been like. As Joseph was squared off now with his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And all of a sudden, I am am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. The word dismayed means distressingly disturbed. Their faces were pale, man. They thought, uh-oh. I mean, you know, just the worst possible scenario was right in front of them. They were worried about the consequences, right? Oh, gee, my neck. <sighs> Joseph had a few options at that point with these guys. Number one, he could have put them in prison in Egypt just so they would feel what it's like to be in prison. I'll just stick him in there for a couple years, and I'll visit him maybe once a year. How does it feel, bros? Kind of lonely, huh? His second option was to send them back to Canaan without any food. Hey, go back to dad and starve. His third option is just to execute them, cut their heads off. That was customary. But he chose a fourth option. I will forgive them, I will love them, and I will display my grace to them by giving them a place to stay and provide for them the rest of their lives. Boy, that's radical. Reminds me of the book of Hosea. God says, Hosea, I want to teach my people Israel a lesson. Oh, good, yeah. Go for it. Okay, I'm going to use you to kind of model that. All right, go marry a harlot. Huh? Yeah, go marry a harlot. And I'll tell you right now, you, as you pour out your love to her, she will be unfaithful to you. And she'll go out and she'll sleep with other men. And while she's doing it, I want you to bring her food and provide for her while she's in her harlotry. And then when she passes the flower of her age, she'll come back home. And when she does, you forgive her. And you bring her back to be your wife. That's the lesson I want to teach Israel. That though they have committed harlotry against me, when they come back, I will open my arms and I'll forgive them if they'll but repent. Joseph was now opening up that fourth option to forgive his brothers. Again, that's a choice. It's a choice that he made long ago. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. Now, you can, you can bet at this point. All they, all they thought is, oh no, they were dismayed. And then he says, come here. And they're thinking, all right, this is it. We deserve it? Okay. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. They're thinking, all right, I had it coming. Look at verse 5. Here's the switch. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You see what's happening? Think of all these tests. Three tests. The test of conscience, the test of jealousy, the test of love. Why all these tests? Because he wanted them to get to a place where they could appreciate being forgiven. 
They couldn't appreciate it if they said, hey, by the way, the first time they met, I'm your brother Joseph. Don't worry about it. There were things that they had to feel. They had to feel conviction. I don't think a person can ever be truly forgiven, experience forgiveness in his heart until that person knows the conviction of sin. That was wrong. That hurt God. And you're grieved over your sin. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. There's nothing more comforting than as you experience and you're in touch with the guilt of your sin and you experience conviction to know that you're forgiven. They had to experience that before they could appreciate total forgiveness. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry up, hasten, and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't tarry. In other words, don't dawdle. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Now that was the best part of Egypt. That was the Ritz. That was like the Beverly Hills. That was the San Joaquin Valley where everything grew. You shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there's still five years of famine. We see a display of two things here, mercy and grace. Again, just let me remind you of the difference. Let's go back. Justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is getting what you deserve. If Joseph said, it's prison for you turkeys, that's justice. But instead, he did not give them punishment. He withheld a sentence that they deserved. That's called mercy. It's when you don't get something that you deserve. But then he says, come on down, man. I'm going to provide for you and take care of your families. That's different. That's grace. That's where you're lavished with things that you don't deserve, on top of not getting what you don't deserve, which is punishment. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve in terms of punishment, that which is negative. Grace is the lavishing of those elements that you don't deserve. Provision, forgiveness, on and on and on. And so it's, it's an example not only of mercy but also of grace. Come on down, I'll provide for your household. And behold your eyes and the eyes of your brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. you know, come close. He probably had one of those fake beards on that we told you about the last two weeks. He ripped it off and go, look, it's my mug, man. It's me. I'm talking to you. And so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry up and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. So they kind of had a weeping party. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. And so it pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants well. They thought, all right, great for Joseph. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for you and your little ones and your wives, and bring your fathers and come. The Egyptians were using the wheel long before the Canaanites and the children of Israel were. They had more advancements in their culture. And they had these carts that looked like war chariots. They had sides on them, six spokes on, the, on each wheel, and uh, they had an umbrella. So they could carry goods and they could put people underneath it and shelter them from the sun. And it w- would have been quite a sight uh, for the Canaanites to see these colorful Egyptian chariots coming down. And by the way, it's these chariots, these wagons, that help convince Jacob that his uh, sons aren't lying to him. Verse 20, and do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so, 
And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for all the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. <laughs> and he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, food for his father and for the journey. He departed, or he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. He's the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. You know, he had heart failure at that point. He's already an old guy. And when they say, Joseph's alive, it brought back that, it triggered all those memories. He went, oh, man, I don't believe what you're telling me. When they could prove it, he revived, it gained him hope. And Israel said, that's enough. That's, that's all I need. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now back to where we started. Forgiveness is a choice. It better be based on more than a feeling. Or you won't extend forgiveness very much. Corey Ten Boom, who housed Jewish uh, people during World War II in Holland when the Nazi persecution was going on. Years later, she was put in concentration camps. She was beaten. And uh, she said that years later, she met one of the most vicious of the guards that tortured her while she was in the Nazi concentration camp, suffering at the hands of these villains. And the man approached her, and she saw his face, and all those memories you know, triggered back. And the man stretched out his hand, the same hand that beat her, and said, Will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom writes of that experience. This is what she says. I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but I knew that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I pray, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arms, and sprang into our clutched hands. Then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment we grasped and held each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I had never known the love of God so intensely as I did at that moment. You want to experience the love of God in a deep fashion? It comes through saying, I forgive you. Though I don't feel like it, I forgive you. Now, there are four definite indicators, four proofs of total forgiveness. Ways that we see here in chapter 45 that Joseph forgave his brothers. And since we're out of time, we'll have to cover those and recap on those next week. Because it would just take too long to do justice to all those points and to recap it. So next week we'll recap those four indicators of total forgiveness and uh, we'll go on into chapter 46. Just a little kind of a teaser, kind of a little hook. <laughs> what a day it must have been like. When Joseph said, I'm Joseph. <gasps> oh, no. But Joseph extended forgiveness. When I first... realized my nakedness and destitution before Jesus Christ in 1973. I came to him almost ashamed. I remember my prayer in a San Jose apartment about 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I started thinking over my life. I felt ashamed. But at the same time, I experienced total forgiveness. As I said, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me for all that I've done? Would you cleanse me and wash me and give me eternal life? 
It was such an incredible fleeing of my guilt. I had lived with guilt for so long. I was 18 years of age, and for 18, I had done a lot in my life. I had experienced a lot of naughtiness, a lot of sin, a lot of guilt. And to experience the assurance of forgiveness, it was like a weight was lifted. I'll never forget that experience and how I felt. In fact, the next couple days when I was on my motorcycle traveling back down to Southern California, I was just singing. I was on the road, you know, uh, trying to do the speed limit, but I was just so <laughs> exhilarated. I just, boom, and I was just singing out loud, making up songs, and I said, man, I've never experienced this. That guilt is gone. That experience can also be constant contrasted with another experience that many people will face. They feel like, hey, I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good works, a lot of wonderful things in the name of the Lord. And they'll stand before Jesus Christ one day and he will say, I never knew you. They'll say, wait a minute, Lord. Wait, 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 wait. I've done wonderful things in your name. I cast out demons in your name. And I mean, I was powerful. I was raised in this religious home and I even went to Calvary Chapel a couple times. So What? I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. What a shock. I think my shock is a much better experience. To be shocked with the fact that God would forgive me and to experience the joy that follows. Rather than thinking, hey, I'm cool, I'm religious, I'm smug, only to stand before God in eternity when Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a shock. Some of you have backgrounds where because of sin you're experiencing certain consequences. You feel like your life is a can of worms. Thinking, man, it's such a mess. Could God ever really do anything with me? I dare you to be shocked. First of all, with how God can totally and utterly forgive you. And just like when Joseph said, I'm Joseph. Imagine Jesus saying, I'm Jesus. Don't be grieved. I've forgiven you. He'll embrace you. But you have to want that. 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 